What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about, you guessed it, the Republican National Convention and their candidate, Donald Trump. Later in the show, George Zornick will report from the streets of Cleveland on the protests outside the convention hall. And John Nichols and D.D. Guttenplan will review the high points and the low points of the proceedings inside the convention. But first, the big question, can Trump win? For that, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and she's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The LA Times, Politico, and many other publications. She's written several books. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book. It's about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, I think Trump is not going to win the election. And I speak here as a dispassionate scholar with a degree in political science. Wow, I'm really impressed. Political science tells us that the daily ups and downs of the news, of the polls, don't really matter much in determining how people vote. Voting in America is remarkably stable from election to election, regardless of who the candidates are. People who voted Republican the last time are extremely likely to vote Republican this time, and it's the same for the Democrats. And the reason I think Trump is going to have a very hard time winning is that Democrats have won the popular vote in five of the last six presidential elections. There was that glitch in 2000 where Bush v. Gore went to the Supreme Court and the winner of the popular vote didn't get to be president. But Obama in 2012 beat Mitt Romney by almost 5 million votes. So the question is, can Trump get all of the Romney voters plus at least 5 million more? Can he get them in the right states, in the swing states, in Florida, Ohio, Virginia, you know, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. I don't think Trump is going to get those votes. First of all, I think he won't do that because he's going to lose some of the the Romney vote, especially some of the Republican women. If he loses even two or three percent of Republican women, uh, especially if it's in Florida or Virginia or Ohio, he's lost the election right there. Well, I think that, you know, what you're saying is, of course, something I've thought about. But One of the special things about this election is precisely Trump. So one of the reasons you get a very stable voting public in America is because you have a very stable crew of candidates. And they're always within certain parameters of legitimacy. And what's interesting now is that Trump is, whether you or even I consider him legitimate, is being considered legitimate by a huge number of people, obviously. Now, there are people who speculate, au contraire to John Wiener, <laughs> okay. that 
that Trump will bring out a historic number, not necessarily of what we might call Republican voters, but of what we might call white voters, that he will bring them out in historic numbers. And that plus a certain number of conservative Latino voters who may not be saying that they would vote for such a fiend, but who might, <laughs> Nicely put. Um, because, because what he says about immigration, if you've been here for two generations or three generations as someone from Latin America, you might not consider yourself to be an illegal immigrant anymore. You might not have solidarity with them. Uh, you might, in fact, feel a little irritated by them. You don't know which way the people like that go, and there are people like that in the swing states, plus a certain number, a small but quiet number, of other minorities could go for him. And, you know, conceivably with the huge white turnout, he could win, especially if Hillary cannot uh, keep the Sanders voters in her stable, but they go to a third-party person. Let's hold off on on uh, Hillary's uh, problems just just for a minute. There's the the white people and the Latino people. The Latino polls this week are terrible, disastrous for Trump. As Four, they should be. Fourteen percent of Latino likely voters say they will vote for Trump. Oh, it's less than half of what Romney got. And you know, in many states, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in California doesn't matter in Texas, you know, the one's going to go Democratic. But it matters in Florida. It matters in Arizona. It even matters in Virginia, North Carolina, some, somewhat. So I would be very surprised if there's something wrong with those poll figures. White people, much more complicated situation. What we know about Trump thus far, basically his primary campaign, is that his base is working-class white men. That seems undeniable. They feel betrayed by the Democratic Party. They don't like a woman. But they didn't like a black man either. The white working class men didn't vote for Obama. In fact, white working class men stopped voting Democratic a long time ago. That's why we call them Reagan Democrats. I think the bigger question is, is whether there's a lot of non-voting white working class men. This is what you're really raising. Are there people who didn't vote for Romney because they objected to his CEO corporate persona? One percent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and are those non-voters, white working class non-voters, likely to vote for Trump? Trump certainly thinks they will. What political science says is that people who didn't vote in the last election are not likely to vote in the next election. That's the basic definition of the likely voter. Did you vote in the last election? Right. And I can see that point. I mean, I see that voter in my mind's eye. He's watching Trump on TV. He's very amused. But is he going to rouse himself to go to the poll? I don't know. If he hasn't gone in the last round of elections, is he going to go for Trump, who he sees basically as television entertainment? That he agrees with, probably, but I don't know if that, that person will really get out to the polls. And, and you raise another very interesting question. We've always assumed up to this point that the ground game is everything in elections, that you need poll workers in precincts to identify who are your supporters, call them up on election day. And get make, them off the couch. Get them off the couch. And Hillary and the Democrats have a massive operation, especially in the swing states, especially in Ohio, to do this. Trump has no ground game. In the primaries, didn't matter at all. Right, because in the primaries, you have dedicated voters who are going to come out. 
and therefore he swept the primaries rather brilliantly. But in the general election, of course, you know, I've been part of those drives, so I know how hard it is even to get your regular Democrat to come out unless you send the bus to pick him up like it's a, you know, tin pot dictatorship (laughs) with a fake democracy. But you got to get them to the polls or you don't win the elections. But I feel here uh, a little concerned because there are things about Trump that one can see are compelling. You know, you don't agree with him, of course, obviously, on anything. But he has this kind of uh, brash persona, which I've avoided for all the years he's been on television until he became a political figure, where he actually seems sincere. And you just can't know what that's going to do in the election. And it's scary historic. So the same fears that he's playing on with his constituency are playing on people like me when I hear you say, oh, it's certain he cannot win, I get a little like, no, let's not be complacent because the dangers are are great. We can also ask, what about the independents? Right now in America, the pollsters, when I ask people, what's your party affiliation? The largest group of Americans say they are independent. They're not Democrats or Republicans. What political science has found is that there are very few true independents who switch from one party to the other between presidential elections. People may not want to say they vote a party line decade after decade, but in practice, almost all the independents who voted for Obama in 2008 voted for him again in 2012. And this is the same for the for the Republicans. Right. Every time a presidential election comes, they say, as they have been saying in this past week, There are still many, many undecided voters out there, which I assume are independently declared voters, but you just can't believe it. How could you look at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and say, hmm, (laughs) which one? What you say is, I don't like either one, therefore I'm I'm independent, undecided. And then there's also new voters, young first-time voters. Supposedly, Trump has some appeal to this group, especially the young male, what shall we call them? White? White (laughs) frat boy types. The frat boys, yeah. The frat boys. Are there enough of them in Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, and Colorado to win him the election? In general, young people are the least likely to register and to vote. Let's count on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, young people were a crucial part of the Obama voting bloc. And And Sanders, of course. Of course, Sanders. And the Republicans have done a lot to try to interfere with, discourage, and block voting by new voters, make it harder to register, make it harder to get to the polls. So the Republican strategy is to, has been in general, to discourage new voters in the belief that they're likely Democrats. So I don't think Trump is going to be able to win because he gets the vote of new, young, first-time It seems to be the ironic thing, maybe as a you know, historian and political scientist, you can correct me on this, but the the Republican attitude about the Voting Rights Act seems now to have to be turned against them because they can't win over people they're not allowing to vote. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Now, all this assumes, all everything that I'm saying, my whole argument assumes that the people who voted for Obama four years ago will vote for Hillary this November that the historic patterns are not going to change. That's what you're not so sure about. Well, I think sitting around this table, we could probably say that at this table, 100% of the people talking here supported Obama then and probably will go in and vote for Hillary. 
But I don't think that everybody who voted for Obama will vote for Hillary. That seems that seems amazing to me because the candidates are so, so different in their presentation. But if the social critic across from me says that, you know, Democrats will vote Democratic and they will get up off their couches because Hillary will magically levitate them with her incredible ground machine to the polls, then, yeah, they're not going to vote for Trump. Well, there is, we are told, strong evidence that Hillary has what what is crudely called a man problem, that men who voted for Obama, some of them are not going to vote for Hillary because they're sexists. Right. This is worth a whole other show. What did the National Review call it? The screech owl effect is... I mean, you just can't believe the kind of stuff that goes on against Hillary. And uh, and and then, if I may go on a bit, Please. to Please. see Trump point to Melania in that objectifying way, like, you know, oh, this is my goddess, and you're going to vote for a normal postmenopausal woman whose voice isn't as high and pretty and foreign and seductive. You would do that? I mean, it just it feels very... Very awkward, this moment for women and and sad. So what we're talking about here is what the scientists call the gender gap. The Democrats have always gotten, for the last five or six elections, significantly more votes from women than from men. If it were up to men in America, John McCain would have been elected president, Mitt Romney would have been elected president, and of course, George Bush was elected president. That's what men in America want. So the Democrats have been able to win five of the last six popular uh, vote contests. But with a man who was the candidate, not a woman. With a man who was a candidate. The argument is, well, this time it's different because there's a woman candidate and some men aren't going to vote for her. But isn't that what, what we worried about Obama eight years ago? First black candidate, a lot of a lot of white people, especially white men, aren't going to vote for him. That there fact, would be a massive defection of white men, especially from the Democratic Party, and there was not. There was some. There was some. White men have always tended to vote Republican, and more of them voted, especially for McCain in, in 2008. So it seems to me if white men, I mean, this is just kind of a, a not. this is not science, but if white men will As vote the for, rest of what you've said has been, yes. <laughs> if white men will vote for a black man, why wouldn't they vote for a white woman? There's a lot more white women in the Senate than there are black men in the Senate. For example, a lot more women have been elected to, to national office. But just as Donald Trump is not every Republican, Hillary Clinton is not every Democrat, nor is she every Democratic woman. You know, she has too long a trail behind her. They've hated her for a long time since she said she wouldn't make cookies or cupcakes or muffins for her husband. She's She has a lot to hate if you're an angry white man who's a Democrat. You know, remember when she said she wasn't going to stay home and bake cookies and that she was forced to uh, let us eat, eat those cookies. She was forced <laughs> to enter a cookie contest. I remember it. And she won the cookie baking contest. Because it was corrupt and she used her Wall Street connections to <laughs> to get that prize, no doubt. <laughs> Just joking. Okay. <laughs> so more women are probably going to vote for Hillary. I think it's almost certain. The polls, well, are, t- polls are very clear. More women are going to vote for Hillary. All she has to do is 
print out three billion copies of the Republican platform and every woman in the country would just morally be forced to vote for her. And what they're going to do is run TV ads in all the swing states with Donald Trump saying all those horrible things about women. There's so many of them. It's easy to put together a 30-second or 60-second spot. Now, there's some evidence that men have the opposite reaction. They think, yeah, (laughs) go Donald! (laughs) So... So there's going to be probably a bigger gender gap, but there are more women vote in America than men. For some reason, women are willing to get off the couch. We're very responsible. Very admirable. Thank you. (laughs) The existence of a gender gap by itself doesn't mean Trump is going to win and and might probably, in balance, is going to help Hillary, it seems to me, if past patterns hold. It's the job of the news media to make it seem like this time it's different, this time the pattern right, isn't holding. Course. This time we have to really pay attention, have to pay attention to today's headlines, to this hour's headlines. And because big news is coming up, what's happened today is a game changer. You right. won't want and Trump to... feeds that, of course, and Trump, he loves it. If history is our guide, if political science is worth anything, this time is not going to be different from other times. And the events of today and this morning and this week are not going to have much effect in changing the long-term patterns. That is my conclusion. And if you're wrong, just duck. (laughs) (laughs) And and if I'm wrong, we'll come back on November 9th and you will will be able to tell me how wrong I was. (laughs) Amy Willens, thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot, John. Now it's time to talk about the wild Republican convention, its aura of violence, and its lengthy closing speech by the candidate. John Nichols was there. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is People Get Ready. John, we're speaking right after the end of Donald Trump's speech, more than an hour of yelling. I'm exhausted. How are you? I am feeling a bit of deja vu. Because uh, I got the text of Donald Trump's speech a little bit early. And, uh, by the way, he was very disciplined tonight. He, he followed the text pretty closely, except, amusingly enough, to throw in several references to Bernie Sanders and <laughs> outreach to Bernie Sanders backers. As I, as I read through the speech, something about it seemed very, very familiar. So I Googled Richard Nixon's acceptance address at the Republican National Convention in August of 1968. And the structural and thematic similarities are astounding. Really? Literally, I I wrote about it. There's a piece at the Nation site on this. It's just amazing. Nixon opened his speech up by saying, essentially, we've been through a lot of really traumatic stuff this summer. We've had violence in the streets, racial division, you know, really traumatic things happen. And the question is, can we have order in America? Can we have law and order? And then he ran down a list of specifics, you know, sirens in the street, gunshots in the night. Look at the opening of Trump's speech. Yeah. Same exact sort of themes. And then as I went through the two speeches, random parallel, I was astounded the number of times that Trump went to the exact same place that Nixon did. Trump talked about speaking about forgotten men and women yes. who, are, who are not heard. Nixon, of course, well-known for his silent majority themes, but it outlined in 
that speech, again, talking about forgotten men and women. This whole notion that violence, uh, traumatic violence, for society is something that is being imposed upon a great majority of Americans that don't want it and who are quite willing to act in very aggressive ways to stop it. Now, why that is significant is not the parallel themes per se. And this isn't plagiarism. It is, it is something, you know, we see candidates return to certain messages. But why it is significant is that if you look at the playout of what Richard Nixon did in 1968, how he expended upon those themes by moving us toward uh, a Southern strategy which exploited racial differences and disagreements by encouraging backlash, by making law and order, the theme law and order associated with that backlash, ultimately leading to policies associated with the drug war and with mass incarceration and with so many challenges that today even conservatives see as problematic developments. Perhaps this speech ought to encourage at least a moment of pause uh, and the question of, do we want history to repeat? Yeah. Well, what struck me was it was it was a list of everything bad, scary, and horrible in in the United States and in the whole world. And somehow or other, this all can be traced back to Hillary Clinton. And somehow or other, he's going to fix uh, all of it. I, I had to say, but he could do it, and John, John, he's going to do it on the first day. <laughs> this is true, and and of course, he, it's just one wild fact after another. I had to say, my my heart went out to the fact checkers on this one. Oh, it's going to be a wild ride, and <laughs> you know they've they've had a pretty adventurous convention uh, <laughs> at many turns, but um, you know, truthfully, fact checkers won't be too overwhelmed here because there really wasn't a lot of specific policy. There wasn't a lot of specific, really even a lot of specific statements. In a sense, it was more of a mood. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, that the mood was exactly as you suggest, fearful, threatening, overwhelming, socially, economically, internationally, and then Trump literally saying, and, I, and I, Nixon did not go this far, Trump literally saying, you know, I'm the only guy who yeah. can fix it. Yeah, that's what my notes say. I alone can fix it. I alone can fix it. I will bring millions of jobs. My favorite was, I will make America's airport security lines fast again. I mean, from the littlest things to the biggest things, he's personally gonna, going to fix all of it. Uh, and you're right. It's a little hard to fact check that. No, I mean, it's like, A, the airport security lines are sometimes a little difficult. Yeah. B, uh, B, you know, he's saying he's going to make it better. Well, you know. Maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Hillary Clinton says next week she wants to make TSA lines quicker, too. Interestingly enough, if I can bring in one other element of this that I found kind of fascinating tonight. We're talking about the bombastic... Uh, the threatening elements of Trump's speech. We should also recognize that he did alter this speech in some ways, even alter his original text, to do a couple of fascinating things. One was that outreach to supporters of Bernie Sanders, yeah, referencing issues, referencing Sanders himself. The second was 
a fascinating soliloquy or, or break, if you will, with regard to the LGBTQ community. He did an interesting thing. He said that uh, lesbians and gays should not be threatened by ISIS, right, by a yes. by terrorist uh, yes. grouping. Now, that's a, it's kind of a dodge, right? You're yeah. not, that's you're why not I'm really, laughing. You know, it's not yeah. the biggest problem for gays and lesbians in this country is that ISIS well, is threatening it, them. Well, it, it has, but we did have a nightclub attack. Yeah. And so these yeah. are, you know, there are real issues that people might want to go to. But, but what's fascinating is Trump, to his credit, found a way to bring a reference to the LGBTQ community into his speech and to get a Republican convention on its feet applauding. And if you'll note, then he paused and said something along the lines of, I'm really proud of you for just doing that. Yeah, that was right? a, that was a surprising moment. I just, and, and this is, uh, there was also a reference to recent immigrants and their employment challenges. Uh-huh. There were references to the African-American community, to the Latino community. I mean, it's clear that this was a carefully constructed speech that 95, 98% of it was focused on his core supporters and, and on his core themes. But there was a little bit of an effort to reach beyond where he's been. That is important, John, because I, my sense is this is going to be a very well-watched speech, one that, that got a lot of attention. And clearly, we're beginning to see Trump try to be a general election candidate. Uh-huh. That's a big deal, and it's a big deal for Democrats. They should, you know, Trump is a shapeshifter. He alters with the circumstance. And uh, if he can be as disciplined as he was tonight. And he was quite disciplined in sticking to text, in, you know, kind of delivering a speech in a, in a classic way. Uh, that does make him a bigger threat than I think some people might imagine. John Nichols in Cleveland. I think we'll probably be speaking with you uh, a week from now when you're in Philadelphia. I would imagine we will. And Let's just hope that uh, there's a decision in Philadelphia to go with brevity. <laughs> John Nichols, freedomwiththenation.com. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Reporting from the convention in Cleveland, we also have D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor-at-large for The Nation. He wrote the book about the magazine. It's called The Nation, A Biography. Don, welcome back. Great to be with you, John. So we've talked to John Nichols about the speech itself. What struck me just watching the proceedings on TV about the rest of the convention was a kind of aura of violence in the convention hall, the chants of lock her up, I thought were pretty disturbing. The booing of Ted Cruz was pretty intense. You were there. What was it like from your vantage point inside the hall? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that the experience on the floor is very different from the experience on TV. Um, You know, it's a much hotter experience. So last night I was standing in the middle of the Utah delegation they were the people who were, Utah voted 70% for Cruz, and they were, in a sense, the least reconciled to Trump. 
Um, what they had wanted on the night of the roll call was simply a chance to have their votes recorded. And then a lot of them would have just shifted quietly to Trump. But the way they counted the votes was that if in some states they counted the votes for everybody. In other states, if a candidate had dropped out, then they assigned those votes to Trump. In Utah, Cruz got all of the votes, all of the delegates, and yet they all ended up being counted for Trump. So the people were very unhappy about that. And last night when Cruz was speaking, they were chanting, Ted, 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 at which point the Trump floor people orchestrated a Trump, Trump, Trump chant and also a chant to keep the pledge, meaning keep your pledge to endorse it. I mean, it felt ugly, but it didn't feel on the edge of violence. Uh-huh. Uh, the only thing that felt on the edge of violence were the chance of lock her up. And that was, that was interesting to me because, first of all, that's going to be the Republican meme going forward. Secondly, I think it's a fairly sticky meme with Hillary Clinton in that it plays on the, the plain fact that most Americans don't think that she's trustworthy. So it's going to be a hard thing to combat. And thirdly, and I think this is what gives it a lot of its, to me, quite sinister power, is that it, it really unleashes a whole reservoir of misogyny as well. I mean, after all, if you're talking about what do we, progressives, the left, Democrats, want for women, we want them to be set free. And this was, you know, thousands of people chanting, lock her up. Yeah. You were on the floor also for Trump's speech, the very long, lot of yelling for more than an hour. What was it like to be on the floor for that? It was, I got to say it was an ordeal on watching on TV. Well, you know, it was, I mean, somebody said, what, what, how would you characterize this speech? And I said it was longer than Bill Clinton and shorter than Fidel Castro. <laughs> and, you know, there were every once in a while there were these little moments. There was an obvious bid for the Bernie Sanders supporters on trade. Um, you know, I, I think he can whistle for that, but, uh, but it was interesting that he was making a bid for that. Uh, and he really didn't make even that much of a bid for the Cruz supporters. So, you know, in that sense, it was interesting. Um, there was a kind of air of barely, barely controlled menace throughout the whole proceedings of the convention, I felt. I mean, there was a real sense of, you know, if you're with us, good, and if you're not, we're going to be coming after you. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, outside and on the streets of Cleveland, this has probably been one of the most incident-free conventions in recent memory. Yeah, it also struck me there was this structure where each night had its theme, make America work again, make America safe again, but they never really said anything about how they were going to accomplish any of these things, and it was pretty much the same thing in his speech. There's going to be jobs for millions of people and infrastructure and no more lines at the airports, but uh, did I miss the part where he explained how he was going to do all this? No, no, it's all about, you know, elect me and I'll change everything. I mean, it's, you know, it's very interesting. In that sense, Trump is the anti-Sanders. I mean, Bernie used to say, you know, just voting for me isn't going to change anything. We're going to have to do all these things. It's going to take time. And Trump says, you know, vote for me and I will change everything, even the long lines at the airport, which <laughs> would be nice to believe that, but I don't think it's going to happen. We saw a lot of the Trump family I got to say, it was more interesting to watch the Trump family than to watch the other speakers. Well, you know, the thing is, first of all, his daughter and Donald Jr. gave very accomplished speeches. You know, they obviously do a lot of public speaking and they're good at it. And Ivanka 
made a strong pitch. I mean, you know, you can judge it on its sincerity, but she made a strong pitch for equality for women, equal pay for equal work. She said that, you know, she said all these things about how women are treated as employees by, uh, by the Trump organization. Now, it's also interesting to note that we had lots of infomercials. We had lots of infomercials tonight featuring people who work for Trump. And I think that is the kind of, that is his model relationship. That is the relationship he's most comfortable in, you know, being with someone whose salary he pays and who he could fire if he wanted to. Yeah. But, we, but nonetheless, I, I also thought it was noteworthy that Ivanka devoted an awful lot of time to essentially trying to detoxify her dad with women. Yeah, Ivanka wants quality child care and equal pay. I didn't hear those in, in and Trump's... Family and, and family leave. And family leave. And family leave. It was like she was at the wrong convention. I didn't hear those things in Trump's own speech. No, and they, and they haven't figured in any, you know, anything the Republicans have ever done in or near office. But, um, but Ivanka promises that they're going to happen and that she's going to fight for them. And, you know, who knows? I mean, there were... There, every once in a while, there'd be this thing that flickered up, whether it was LGBTQ guarantees or whether it was Ted Cruz saying that, you know, in America, everybody has the right to their own identity, or whether it was this in her speech, or whether it was Trump talking about um, the effect of America's endless wars in the Middle East. Um, there, every once in a while, there are these wild and crazy swerves off the GOP reservation, and it was interesting to me that, first of all, the, the audience never gave him a hard time about any of them. Uh, some of them got applause. Some of them were just tolerated. But there was no resistance to any of them. And, uh, and I just wonder how much more of that we're going to see. You know, there's a way in which when Trump pivots, he pivots left. And it'll be interesting to see which way Hillary pivots when she pivots. D.D. Guttenplan, read him at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us tonight. Pleasure to be here, A lot of the news from Cleveland about the Republican National Convention was not about inside the hall, but rather what was happening outside in the streets. And covering the action in the streets, we have George Zornick. He's Washington editor of The Nation. We reached him today in Cleveland. George, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Norm Stamper was the police chief in Seattle for the wild protest there at the 1999 World Trade Organization meetings. That was the famous battle in Seattle. And he recently wrote an op-ed titled How to Prevent Violence in Cleveland. His prescription was, first of all, avoid a military-like appearance for police officers. He says... Police officers in a free and democratic society don't look or act like soldiers. This was before the convention. He said the Cleveland police should show up in soft, everyday uniforms, that riot-equipped officers should be kept out of sight and should only be called upon if absolutely necessary to prevent violence or widespread property damage. That's what the former chief of police of Seattle said. What did you see of the Cleveland police in in the streets uh, around the convention site? Well, you know, first of all, he is absolutely right. And and there's a fair amount of social science research that has looked at this, and they describe something called the weapons effect, where when people who come out 
um, even to demonstrate peacefully, see police officers uh, or members of law enforcement in things that um, resemble military sort of gear or they see military weapons, that has a psychological effect that sort of raises the tension and, and puts people on a more ag aggressive posture. And we know from our reporting that, that Cleveland has ordered about $20 million worth of this equipment and, and brought it into the city specifically for this convention. Now, I will say that it appears um, that, that Cleveland has so far listened to his advice or, or, or reached that conclusion on their own because I would say a vast majority of the law enforcement officers that I've seen around town are indeed wearing um, sort of soft, regular police gear. A lot of them, frankly, are on bicycles and, and just zipping around. They no doubt have this equipment somewhere, and, and I'm sure it's quite nearby and ready to be deployed um, very quickly if need be. And I think even at that point it would be a concern because you would have a, a, a situation that's presumably already very tense or even has gotten violent. Um, and you raise the stakes with this kind of military equipment. But so far, they've kept a, a, a pretty reasonably low profile here. The other thing that Norm Stamper, the Seattle chief of police for the 1999 WTO protest said was, the police have to make it clear to everybody that their mission is first and foremost to protect the right of their fellow citizens to assemble and freely express themselves as guaranteed by the Constitution. I know there are very tight controls on who can go where in Cleveland with very specific designated rally stages. How has that been going during this convention? I checked in with the National Lawyers Guild right before we spoke, and they said it's still uh, in the single digits of, of people who have been arrested uh, during demonstrations. You're right, there are, there are specific protest zones where if you have a big group, you need to go to one of these zones. People can move somewhat freely around, at least sort of close to where the convention is. The security gets very tight when you get within about half a mile of the arena. But people can move around. I think the police are on the lookout for demonstrations that um, do not apply for a permit or are not inside the zone. And there's sort of weird, wonky rules about what is a demonstration. It's sort of like if there's a group of more than five people and if you stand in place and there's all these things that might be hard to comply with. But as far as I can tell, the, the officers are being um, understanding. If, if people start to do that, they try to move them along. And I, I haven't seen, I've been out uh, quite a bit over the past two days looking at these things, and I, and I haven't seen any serious tension or, or, or serious conflict. I think my impression, um, and I won't say this is necessarily true of every person who's been arrested, but my impression is that these arrests were sporadic, rare, and they were people who were um, genuinely stepping out of line. But I don't, I don't know that that's true for every person. The Republican convention in Cleveland this past week and, and the Democratic convention in Philadelphia next week have each been designated a national security special event. What is a national security special event? Well, this is something that Congress created back in 1998, and it was first used in Houston, Texas, where there was a big meeting of um, basically oil company executives and then a lot of uh, heads of state from oil-rich countries and, of course, a lot of American politicians. And that was the first time one of these has been deployed. It, it, they're frequently deployed um, at Super Bowls, political conventions, a lot of things like that since that inauguration day, election night. And what it means basically is that the federal authorities come in and sort of take strategic and logistical control of the situation. So the Secret Service is everywhere here in Cleveland, Department of Homeland Security, um, U.S. Capitol Police. 
So they're mainly running things on a, on a sort of strategic level. Um, the local police department here in Cleveland, and will also be the case in Philly, was given $50 million by Congress in the omnibus legislation that passed in December, specifically for security. So Cleveland, like Philly, they're going to use about $30 million of that on personnel costs, just hiring, uh, paying officers to work overtime and, and probably bringing in extra folks. And $20 million of that goes to this, this equipment, a lot of it, which is uh, military-style sort of hardware. I know, um, I know that you've tried to find out what the city of Cleveland purchased uh, with those tens of millions. Uh, how, how has that gone, that research? Well, I put in a public records request with the city of Cleveland for the purchase orders, um, which at some point they are required to give. They have not given it up um, as of now, and I strongly doubt that I will get that information in the next 72 hours before the end of the convention. They have some kind of reasonable, I guess, concern that they don't want to sort of tip their hand as to policing strategy. But uh, a lot of the folks here, particularly local civil liberties advocates, think that people here deserve to know what um, has come into their city and what kind of equipment is here. Because the really important point is that this equipment is not just, they're not rentals. They're not just going to leave after the convention. That The city of Cleveland now owns all this uh, policing hardware, and it's going to stay here. Now, I'm sure you know that the city of Cleveland is already, the, the police department is already under a federal consent decree with the Department of Justice for use of excessive force. So it's something that's concerning to a lot of folks here that, that a police department um, with a record like that has now permanently has all this hardware. I think we'll find out in about six weeks what exactly they bought. They do have to eventually disclose it. I mean, it was public funds. That was the case in Tampa. It was about six weeks after the convention. They finally released all the purchase orders. Some police departments have used a weapon known by the initials L-R-A-D. L-R-A-D, is that what they call it? Yeah, L-R-A-D, exactly. What, what, what is an L-R-A-D? Well, this is a tool that was actually developed by the U.S. military back in 2000 after uh, the USS Cole was attacked. You remember um, there were radicals who, who used speedboats to, to basically kamikaze the boat. So they, they came up with this system that emits this incredibly concentrated, very high decibel noise. It's about 149 uh, decibels. So to give a comparison, if you were standing next to a military jet that was taking off, that would be about 130 decibels. So this is even more intense than that. No matter what, a person near one of these LRADs, if it's deployed, is going to have to immediately flee. They're going to have to run as fast as they can in the opposite direction, which is, of course, the uh, intended effect. But you know, something developed by the military to deter a terrorist on a speedboat who is, you know, heading in your direction is now uh, commonly being used in sort of civil demonstrations and in domestic crowd control. Um, and it's something that's really concerned a lot of, of policing experts and, and um, civil liberties experts because it, it may even raise First Amendment concerns if this is really that disruptive to the right to assemble. Even the, even the presence of these things, if people know that they're here, it may have a chilling effect and sort of discourage them from assembling. One of the biggest worries uh, we have about both Cleveland and Philadelphia is the emotional state of police officers after the killing of officers in Baton Rouge and Dallas. How would you describe the problem? How does it look to you on the streets of uh, Cleveland? Well, I have to say everyone, the police officers that I've seen and interacted with, 
seem comfortable and laid back. I, I have not sensed personally any tension. I think that nationwide it's it's the case. And I spoke with an expert from my story who said, you know, it, it nationwide on average it, it's having a really powerful effect and, and an understandable effect on police officers. You've had two really kind of unprecedented events in the past two weeks where members of law enforcement were targeted um, randomly and ambushed essentially for sort of larger ideological or political reasons. So that's put them on a footing, I think, at least nationwide, that um, they're, they're, they're alarmed and they're feeling vulnerable. That, of course, can lead to, has the, at least the potential to lead to reactions that are, are too fast or, or not um, employed with the discretion that perhaps they should. So it's, it's a dangerous situation, though. I, I will say here in Cleveland, I, well, I obviously haven't spoken with every officer in town. Every, everything seems to be so far pretty smooth and calm. One more thing. My hometown of St. Paul was the site of the Republican National Con Convention in 2008. That was the one where Sarah Palin made her national debut. It was also the convention where the forces of order were very tough and repressive and where Amy Goodman and other Pacifica Network journalists were arrested and roughed up. Eventually, they sued and won, a, I think, a six-figure settlement. How have the police in Cleveland been treating the media? You've been out in the, in the streets. How have they treated you and your colleagues? They've been um, respectful and, as I say, calm. There haven't really been any tense situations, though, so I'll, I'll reserve judgment until there's uh, a scene where you have a mass protest, where there's civil disobedience, where arrests are being made, and journalists are trying to get in there and cover it, which is their right to do. That's that's typically when we see these sorts of things, and so I'll reserve judgment until that happens. One interesting thing is that just heading into the convention, the city of Cleveland quintupled their liability insurance, their protest insurance, and it basically indemnified them from um, any kind of civil liberties lawsuits that, that may be brought, like those from Amy Goodman or, or you remember in 2004 in New York. I think that those lawsuits over how police treated protesters were being litigated even up until a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, concerning some civil libertarians here, because certainly the, the police officers know that this just enormous insurance policy has been purchased. And you have to at least wonder, well, if they know that that basically the, the money's out, you know, they've paid the premium and, and they'll be covered in the event of civil liberties violations, is that a factor in their thinking? Do they know that uh, the consequences are sort of already mitigated on the back end? George Zornick, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, George. Thanks, John. Anytime. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Oriano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.